For nearly four decades, our guest has carried the weight of justice on his shoulders. You're going to want to listen to this one. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back to the Chuck Williams Show. And as I've been telling people, this isn't about me. This is about our guest. And tonight, we have an incredible guest. Uh, We have Kenny Davis. Kenny is the district attorney in Russell County. He was appointed to the office in 1983. You do the math. Nearly 40 years as DA of, of, of one of Alabama's most interesting counties. Uh, uh, Kenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, 40 years. You've been 44 years as a prosecutor, 40, 38 years as a DA. That's right. That's that's long past the normal um, longevity for those positions, isn't it? Well, as, uh, to the best of my knowledge and belief, I'm, I'm the longest-serving district attorney in the history of the state of Alabama and the longest-serving elected district attorney in the United States of America. That's what I'm told. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't swear to that under oath, but that's what the people who look into it tell me. So it's been a tremendous honor for me uh, to serve in that position for 38 years, three months. If you look at that, Kenny, that's nine, ten election cycles. It's a, it's well, they're six-year terms. Okay, six so, years, not so four-year terms. About six, it's about six election cycles, right? That's a lot of time that the voter. I mean, in, un, you ran unopposed much of that time, right? I only had opposition one time, and in fact, that was the last time my last uh, my last election I was opposed. Tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into the prosecutor stuff. I mean, you were a native of Columbus, right? No, I was a native of Phoenix City, but I was born in Columbus because uh, I was born at Bush Hospital. Uh, Where's Bush Hospital? I've never heard. (laughs) Nobody has. It was down on 13th Street. It became a dry cleaners. And uh, when when my son was young, uh, and I would point out to him that that's where I was born. He thought it was pretty funny that I was born in dry cleaners. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately it, was, it was torn down. But uh, I guess it was founded by a doctor here whose name was Bush, and he actually delivered me. But uh, Everybody else in my family was delivered by Dr. Luton in Phoenix City, but I was delivered by Dr. Bush. How old are you, Kenny? I'll, I'll be 75 years old in October. So your entire adult life has been spent as a prosecutor. Was there anything in your raising that kind of led you to believe that you may go this route? Well, uh, you know, like two million other lawyers in this country, I read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and (laughs) then I saw the movie. and uh, I, I guess you could say that was an inspirational moment for me. It's sort of strange that I became a prosecutor while the protagonist in that movie uh, was a defense lawyer and uh, and was defending a a wrongly accused uh, black man uh, accused of rape in the South uh, in the 40s or 50s. So, but that movie uh, and the portrayal of that character, I read the book before I saw the movie. I saw the movie at the Palace Theater and I don't know if there's anybody out there in the office in the audience that remembers the Palace Theater in 
in Phoenix City, Alabama. But when I was a kid, that was one of my refuges. It, it was one of the few places in town that was air conditioned. Where uh, was the Palace Theater? Well, it was just below the courthouse. It was uh, it was only a block from our courthouse. Uh, if you go if you go north on, uh, I guess that's. Fifth Avenue. So, sort of where the Piggly Wiggly is now. No, above above the Piggly Wiggly. It's where the it's across the street from where the Taylor Funeral Home okay. is now. There okay. used to be uh, Britton and Dobbs Funeral okay. Home. Okay, it was across the street from there, and uh, you know you could go to the matinee on Saturdays for a quarter, I think, uh, and and I went there many times. My brother, my brother and I would go up there. It, it was only a few blocks from where I lived. I grew up on 10th Avenue and 12th Street uh, in Phoenix City on Holland Creek. Uh, my mother worked in the mill, which at that time was Muskogee Mill. It would become Fieldcrest Mill. My dad uh, had a number of jobs. He had a construction company at one time, but he became a fireman, and he, he became the assistant fire chief of Phoenix City. He worked for the fire department for 32 years. So you grew up in a solid blue collar working. Family. Absolutely, I was I was the first person, uh, actually the second person I think in my family to graduate from high school. Uh, in I don't know how long my mother's sister graduated from high school. She actually lived. With so us. neither of your parents did graduate from high school. They didn't. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. My father uh, joined the army when he was fourteen years old, and my mother. Uh, came up here from down in Brundage, Alabama, with that diaspora of people that moved when the war came, and uh, there were jobs here, uh, and it was and it wasn't long after the depression, of course. So, and they hard, left the farm. They left yeah, they the left the farm. It, it was hard times, and uh, they came up here. My uh, grandfather, my mother's father, had. I don't know, five or six small businesses, a, a gas, we, we used to call them gas stations, you call them convenience stores now, an oyster bar, uh, I don't know. Couple, was all that in Pike couple, County? No, that, that was in Phoenix City. Okay. That was, he was a farmer in, in, uh, in Brundage, Alabama. Uh, but they moved here uh, when the war came. My mother went to work in, uh, in a mill. Uh, my grandfather had those businesses, but people asked me about the... Uh, you know, Phoenix City, this was before the cleanup, if yes. you will. I was six, seven years old. One of my memories is uh, my mother uh, picking me up under my arms to play the slot machine in my, in, that was on the counter in my grandfather's oyster bar on 14th Street. You remember that? Absolutely. It's one of the few memories I have, actually, of my grandfather, uh, my mother's father. So were they part of the of the gambling enterprise there? Uh, or I mean, it, or were their their slot machines were no, everywhere? It was just a businessman. Everybody had slot machines at that time. I remember. I remember when the National Guard came when when martial law was declared. My father took me down to uh, the Fourteenth Fourteenth Street Bridge, which isn't there anymore, of course. And I saw the National Guard throwing slot machines into the river. How old were you? Uh, seven, I think. What impression did that make on you as a kid? I mean, I mean, you couldn't have comprehended what was going on at the time, but obviously no, you I, do now. I, well, I mean, it was just strange. It, it was it was very strange, but you have to understand that at that time, 
I walked to elementary school every day about six blocks by myself or with my brother who was smaller than me. I mean, it wasn't like we were terrified about being in Phoenix City. There were bad things going on. Uh, but I think for the average person, it, it, uh, it, it wasn't like we were afraid to go out or to do things. Saying that, of course, uh, there were people here who were bombed. Their houses were bombed because they were, they were trying to do something about what was going on in Phoenix City. Uh, of course, uh, the, the Attorney General Pro Tem was murdered a, a, block, assassinated. A, block, a block from where my office is, assassinated, a block from where my office is. People were beaten up. But those things, I don't know that the average person that you, certainly not me as a child, really thought about it. You know, really watching the slot machines being thrown in the river by these guardsmen was, to me, it was just sort of interesting and, I, and maybe humorous. I don't know, but it, it, was, it was a strange time. As somebody who has been in charge of justice in Russell County for 40, 38 years, 44 years as a prosecutor, how can you explain why the Phoenix City corruption story happened? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not conversant enough with the history of, of, it, of it to tell you. I don't know. It, it was a Phoenix City was in a unique place. All the jobs for Phoenix City people were in Columbus, and and of course Fort Benning largely drove the economy. The cotton mills in Fort Benning drove the economy, and Phoenix City was, I guess, totally dependent on Columbus for for its for its income, you know, for its financial base. I, I don't, I don't. I'm not conversant enough with the history of it to be able to answer that question. Could Chuck. it happen again? Well, sure. I mean, I guess it could. Uh, I think it's unlikely given given uh, the internet and and uh, <laughs> I, I mean the way news happens now. I think that'd be very unlikely. But yeah, I mean things can happen. We're we're seeing. Uh, you know, if you want to compare violence in Russell County now to violence in Russell County in the 1950s, there's no comparison whatsoever. And what we live in a we live in a county. I live in a county. I'm the DA of a county with about 62, 63,000 people. We have 40 pending murder cases right now, waiting to go to trial in Russell County, Alabama. Russell County, Alabama, on a per capita basis, is one of the most violent cities in in the state of Alabama. How do you how do you explain that? I mean, I, I mean, proximity to Columbus is part of it. Well, it is, but you know that those roads go both ways. I mean, Columbus has Phoenix City people who commit crimes in Columbus. We we have Columbus people who commit crimes in Phoenix City. Uh, the, I mean, the 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 prevalence, the uh, uh, gun crimes here in Phoenix City and in Columbus are just, uh, it's, it's very concerning, it's very troubling to see it. 40 pending murder cases in Phoenix yeah, and, City. And of course, a, a part of that is that, that uh, COVID for more than a year now has kept us from trying as many cases as we would normally try. But, but on the other hand, 
cases take so much longer to try now. Let me give you an example. In 1982, I tried a capital murder case where, where a man was murdered in Hertzboro, Alabama, store death, owner. Death penalty case. It was a death penalty case. It was A store owner was murdered. Uh, two men came in, uh, robbed him in the middle of the day, shot him to death. The, an arrest was made of both men within a few days. And from the time of that arrest and the death of this man until the jury returned with a verdict was six months. Today, that figure is more like three and a half years. Uh, we spend so much time now waiting for uh, forensics reports from the lab, uh, post-mortem exam, autopsies, DNA, in almost every case that we have now, there's a motion filed to have the, this individual, the defendant, mentally examined for mental evaluation sent to the only facility we have in the state to do a mental examination and make a determination about, one, is that person competent, and two, was he or she uh, legal, legally competent? Were they sane at the time they committed the offense? That can take a year, a year and a half. Uh, you, our biggest difficulty today, frankly, in trying a murder case is finding the witnesses. When you're talking about three years between the time that the crime occurred and the time that we go to trial, rounding the witnesses up is a tremendous challenge. And there's also a no-snitch no culture as well. Well, that, that's... I think that's the most unfortunate part of what's going on in our society, not just in Phoenix City, but all, all over this country, is this, this uh, what to call it, this uh, mania about don't snitch, don't tell, don't be a witness. Snitches uh, get and, stitches. And, and, and what's so tragic about that is the people who are not telling are the people who are the victims. They are, the, they are, they are, they are in the communities uh, where these crimes occur. In some and cases in Columbus, they may be the next victim. Absolutely. Absolutely. Snitch uh, or not. And, and it, it, is, it, permeates, uh, it permeates a culture. It permeates a part of our society. And, you know, cases depend on witnesses. We're lucky when we get DNA. We're lucky when we get fingerprints. We're, we're lucky when we get a ballistics match and we find the murder weapon. Uh, what we depend on every day is a witness, an eyewitness who saw it. When you have a thing that hap a murder that happens and there are 50 people there and nobody will testify, even the people who may give a statement to the police at the time, an inculpatory statement as to the defendant, when it gets time to go to trial, they don't want to testify. They don't, they don't want to participate. Uh, that's very difficult. How do you do this? How do you handle this and not become jaded? Well, I, I, I think if you ask uh, 100 prosecutors that have experience as prosecutors, I would think that they would say that's something they fight every day. Cynicism uh, is is something that you have to fight. You have to not 
submit to it. You have to stay above it. You have to say the majority of the people in this county and in every other county are good people, good folks. They want to do the right thing, but I have to, I'm dealing with a subset of people that that's not true about, and and I have to uh, I have to stay above it. Every prosecutor has to stay about it and, and try to do the right thing because that's the task of a prosecutor. Now, I've, I, you know, I used, I've, I used to talk a lot. I, uh, back when I ran for office, you, know, you, you have to be a politician. I am a politician, although the, the day after I'm elected, I have to forget that I'm a politician because your responsibility is not to consider politics when you make a decision. Uh, well, I had been uh, DA only a year or so when an issue came up about illegal gambling in Russell County, in Phoenix City and Russell County, and it had to do with bingo. Bingo was illegal at that time. It was well known that there were certain organizations in town uh, good, good organizations did good things, but doing charity work, doing them. charity work. But they were they were playing bingo. Somebody came to me and made a complaint and said, "Look, this is illegal. I want you to do something about it." So I I contacted those people that we knew to be doing, and I said, "You got to cease this. You can't do it. You can get a statute passed, and you can do it again." But I have to enforce the law. Well, I had a number of. Friends, political and otherwise, said, well, this, you'll be a one-term DA. This is it. You're through. Uh, you have to do the right thing. Taken and out by the bingo card. Right, taken <laughs> out by bingo. But uh, we, we, they did get a statute passed. Uh, Leslie Vance, who was, uh, who was uh, in state legislature at that time, got a, got a statute passed. And you know, now we have bingo in Phoenix City at various places. Uh, but you, you, have to do the, you have to do the right thing. That the hardest part about being, a, one of the hardest parts about being a district attorney, being a prosecutor, is realizing that you are not, you cannot be swayed by public opinion. I'm not a county commissioner or a city councilman or the mayor. But you're elected the same way they I'm are. I'm elected they are, absolutely the way they are. Not only that, it's a partisan election. You know, I'm, I'm a Democrat in Russell County. Uh, but you have to put all that aside. You cannot, you cannot bend to that. You have to put that aside. You have to put aside uh, how the public feels about a particular thing and do what the law requires and what's fair and what's just. Is that ingrained in you or is that something you learned over years? I have always loved justice. I will say that. Uh, I hate injustice, and I love justice. And I, and when you say ingrained, I think I love. I learned that from my mother and my father. Uh, they taught me that, and I have a real love for, for justice. Define justice. I know what Webster uh, well, says. How would you define justice? You're the guy that carries I, it I, out. I think it's justice and fairness are too close, too close things. They're they're analogous. I I think that. To do justice is to do what, in balance, is the right thing. We have every criminal statute that I know of has 
if you if you have a class C felony, the range of punishment is from one year to ten years. Okay, it's a wide you, range, and you can get you could get probation. Uh, you could get a split sentence. You can do. Why is that? Why do all of those? A murder in Alabama is punishable by from ten years to life in prison. Well, the legislature obviously intended that the circumstances and the individual is what matters in every single case. If you just said, if you just said, okay, I convicted you of murder, I'm going to give you the maximum sentence. We wouldn't need a prosecutor. We wouldn't need, you know, we would just need a computer, I suppose. Uh, you look at you look at every case, and you in every single case, I don't care how simple that case is, is different. They're not alike. They're just like, the, you know, the almost eight billion people on Earth. Even identical twins are different. Cases are different, and and murders the, are different, right? I mean, oh, absolutely different, absolutely different, and and. The prosecutor's responsibility is to look at every single case and make a determination about what he feels is the right thing to do in the case. Now, that's a, that's a huge responsibility. Robert Jackson, who was a justice of the United States Supreme Court and who was the chief prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials after the war in Munich, Germany, when he, was a, when he was a justice of the Supreme Court, he said the most important, the most powerful role in the criminal justice system is that of the prosecutor. I'm paraphrasing. And it is. One of the things that we're seeing in this country is that certain people with a lot of money have realized the power of the prosecutor. They overlooked that for a long time. And they are throwing millions and tens of millions of dollars into di district attorney races in Los Angeles, in, in New York, in Houston, Texas, in Seattle. Uh, and they intend to change uh, the criminal justice system. And I leave it to the individual to determine whether that's, whether what they want to do is good or bad. I, I would submit to you when you have a district attorney, let's just say in Los Angeles, who says, I'm not going to prosecute any theft case, any property case, that the value is less than $1,000. Well, he just, he's just saying to someone who wants to be a thief, you, can, you have immunity to steal $1,000. That's, that's incomprehensible to me. I don't, I don't understand that. Uh, is the law black and white or is it gray? No, it's, it's, it depends. It, it, it's different for every case. It's not, if we, it, again, if we just said, okay, you were convicted of murder, you get life in prison. Well, you know, what were the circumstances of the murder? Of the murder? What is, is this an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old? Is is, does he have a criminal history? Is this a guy who's... 25 years old, and he has a significant criminal history. All of those things matter in the case. What were the facts of the case? Was this a fight that turned into a homicide, or was it a, an absolutely innocent victim who was the victim of a homicide? Like the Hertzberg murder you alluded to, cold-blooded killing of a store clerk. Yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah. Uh, it, you look at the facts, 
you, you look at the, another thing, of course, that plays into every case that we try is what's the evidence? You know, how, what is the likelihood of conviction if we go to trial? Any prosecutor that says he doesn't look, in that, look at that is just not telling you the truth. My responsibility is to never try a case that I don't believe we have a, a very good chance of winning. That's my responsibility as a prosecutor. But the facts are different in every case. Sometimes you have, you got fingerprints, you got DNA, you got a confession. Other cases you have purely circumstantial evidence. We tried a case uh, a month ago, a murder case in Phoenix City, which was almost entirely a circumstantial evidence case. And the outcome was that we had 10 people who wanted to convict and two people who didn't. And we wound up with a mistrial and we'll have to try it again. I'm I'm more than satisfied that the evidence is sufficient, but you have to you have to convince all twelve people. Let's talk about some of the cases you've done over the years. Um, you have you have tried some of the most horrendous crimes in the state of Alabama and our region, and the one that pops to mind for me was the mur- murder of the Boyer boy. Uh, the Boyer case was uh, was. Uh, it, it's one of the it's one of the cases that that certainly was uh, one of the most troubling, horrendous cases that I've seen. I went I went down to this place on 4:31 early in the morning. I believe it was a February. It was raining. It was cold, and uh, I watched the officers uh, pull that young man's uh, body out of a muddy hole. Uh, and that sort of thing sticks with you. I mean, you, you don't forget that. So you but, were there when that, the body was exhumed. Uh, we, we go to all major felonies. When you, as I said before, when, you know, when you're looking at you're not going to try a case for two or three years, nothing can replace being there. All the photographs in the world, all the videotapes in the world will not replace being there, seeing it, smelling it, feeling it, uh, because I, you're I going to have to tell 12 critical. people that eventually. Yeah, you've got to portray it to them about what it was like. Because, again, video isn't in person. It, it's, it's a video. It's great to have it, but it's not like in person. So, you, yeah, you got to – and if you don't – if you're not there, uh, I, I don't think you can – I don't think it's possible to really portray it the way it occurred. What you saw, when you saw that body, that kid's body and being pulled out of that hole, did you realize you had a national story on your hand? Uh, no, I didn't. But I you didn't did. Th- I didn't think about it as a national story, Chuck. This is what I thought. This is what I think every time I have a case like this. I'm standing there and I say, this is a terrible crime. This is, this is uh, tragic to a lot of people. And in the end, the person that's going to see whether justice is done here is me because law enforcement's going to find this guy. They're going to arrest this they guy. They found those guys quick. They did, and they did a wonderful job. The Russell County Sheriff's Office did a great job in that case. Uh, but you as a prosecutor, you're looking at this and you're saying it doesn't matter what the evidence is. It doesn't matter who's arrested. You are the guy that, in the end, has to convince 12 people that you don't know and they don't know you that this crime occurred so that justice is done. And if you fail, 
If you fail, there is no justice for this 12-year-old boy. I can't imagine the pressure that comes with that gig. Well, uh, you know, I have to be honest. I don't think most people understand that. I, if you ask the average person in Russell County or in Muskogee County who's the DA, I, I don't know that they would know. Okay, Or what does the DA do? I don't know that most people would know what the DA does uh, or what his responsibilities are or what his oath requires him to do. Uh, but as a prosecutor, you learn that very quickly. You, you learn that these things are going to happen. They're going to be your responsibility. And if you make a mistake, uh, you you can you can be the one responsible for the denial of justice. That's a heavy burden. I, I don't mean to. I mean, I, I'm not aggrandizing what I do or what prosecutors do, but I'm just telling you that is that's what we do. That's our responsibility. I've, I have uh, I, I used to throw up almost every time before I tried a case uh, because. I realize that responsibility. It, it's a tremendous burden. I've heard you, of that. You've got to get. You've got to get. You have the evidence, but you got to get the evidence introduced. You got to get it in. That's it, technical. That's a technical. No, you got to know the rules of evidence. You got to know how to. Let's take DNA. It, it's a tremendously complicated predicate process to get DNA introduced. You can't just say there's a DNA match. No, you don't, you don't just say, okay, it's, you know, it's not like uh, law and order. But you just <laughs> say, we offer States Exhibit 45. It may take 10 witnesses to get a piece of evidence introduced into evidence, and it has to be handled right. If it wasn't handled right, you're not going to get it into evidence, and guess what? If you don't get it into evidence, you're not going to get a conviction. Chain, a break in the chain of custody, and you're done. Absolutely. And, and let's, let, let me address that. We have, we have an inherent issue between Phoenix City and Russell County because almost every trauma victim that we have in Russell County comes across the river into Columbus, Georgia. Columbus, Georgia is a sovereign state like Alabama is. We don't just call up the hospital over here and say, hey, we want the medical records for so-and-so. It's a difficult process to do that. Uh, they cooperate with us, but they have responsibilities. You know, they, they're federal statutes that prohibit them from doing certain things or releasing certain information. Uh, it, it, it's a complicated process for us to get, let's say, just something as simple as a blood alcohol content in a, in a DUI or a DUI homicide. Uh, if that blood is drawn in Columbus, Georgia, it's drawn by a Columbus, Georgia technician, it's analyzed by a Columbus, Georgia technician, where are those people? How do we get them to come to Alabama? My subpoena is no good in Columbus, Georgia. I have to go through the Columbus courts to get that done. And again, we get full cooperation from, from the hospitals and medical people over here, and we appreciate very much. We call on them all the time. But they have rules that they have to go by, and, and we appreciate that. You know... In 38 years of sitting in that chair, was there ever a point where you just kind of looked up and said, why me? Why am I here? 
Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I made that choice. I, I, when I went to law school, I, I was... Uh, Where'd you go to law school? I went to law school at Sanford University at the Cumberland School of Law in Birmingham. I, I Fine was, law school. Uh, I, I believe it is. I, I had a wonderful experience there. The, the, uh, my classmates were eclectic. They were from all over the United States of America. I had classmates from Princeton and UCLA and Michigan and every school in the South. And you were an Auburn guy. And I was an Auburn guy, right. <laughs> uh, and and it, was, it was really interesting to me. I very much enjoyed law school. But when I went to law school, I was uh, 28, all right? I, had, I, I graduated from Central High School in 1965. I began uh, Auburn in, in the winter quarter of 1966 because I had to get up enough money to do that. I worked in the mill at that time to save that money up. And uh, I was there about two years. I got drafted. Uh, and then I got married, and then I had a son. And so I didn't go back and finish at Auburn until 1975. And then in 75, I went to, we moved to Birmingham. I sold my house. We moved to Birmingham. My wife, God bless her, uh, Emily, she worked two jobs to put me through law school. And we had a, we had a pact when we went, you know, she insisted that you're not going to work, you're going to go to law school, that's your job. And, and I took care of our son when he wasn't in school. But she worked two jobs, she worked a job in the daytime and then she taught school at night. Uh, and and it, it was a difficult thing. And what I wanted to do, frankly, was to make some money, uh, you know, to be a products liability lawyer, civil lawyer. But uh, my wife, my wife very much wanted to come home where her family was, where her mother was, and I got an offer to go to work for Bill Benton, who at that time was a DA in Russell County. And it didn't pay a lot, but I figured I could be there a while, and that would give me some trial experience, and in the long run, it would help me. What did Mr. Benton pay you out of law school? You remember? $12,000 a year. 12000 a year. Mm-hmm. $12,000 a year. What I, could you have gotten in, if you had gone to a firm in Montgomery or Birmingham? I, I don't know. I, I have no you idea. didn't go that. So did you think you were going to do prosecuting for a while and then no. do something else? No. So I you made your decision you were a prosecutor. I, I did it for a while, and and I just really liked it. Uh, I mean, I this this is – I apologize if this is melodramatic, but, but I, I, I – this – this scene comes for me. There was a movie that uh, that Tom Hanks made a few years back. It's called Philadelphia, and it was about a lawyer, uh, a civil lawyer in a very big firm in Philadelphia who was uh, both gay and had AIDS. And uh, his law firm fired him because they discovered that he had AIDS, and he sued them. And Denzel Washington uh, was his lawyer, was Tom Hanks' lawyer. He represented him in this lawsuit. And Tom Hanks is on the witness stand, and he's being, it's, it's direct examination by uh, Denzel Washington. And Denzel asks him, what is it about the law that you love? And Hanks' reply is, well, every now and then, just occasionally, I get to be a part of seeing justice done. DA gets to do that every day, every day. How many 
how many jury trial jury trials have you done in forty four years? More than two hundred. More than two hundred to verdict. Mm-hmm. How many of those were death penalty cases? Somewhere around, somewhere between like 37, 38, and 42, 43, somewhere in there. So, of those death penalty cases, have you seen any of the any of the people that were convicted put to death? Two. I've had two put to death. Who were they? Uh, one of them was a man named Larry Heath, and Larry Heath had his... Uh, he, he hired some people to murder his wife, who was nine months pregnant at the time. They kidnapped her from Phoenix City and took her to Columbus. Uh, I'm sorry, not Columbus. They took her to Georgia up to LaGrange, shot her in the head, and left her in her automobile. They were indicted in uh, in, in, in LaGrange, and went to trial but not for capital murder. They went to trial and were convicted of murder and got life sentences. We indicted them for capital murder uh, in Russell County and they, they all got the death penalty. Larry Heath, was, Larry Heath is the only one that's been executed. That was the husband. That case went to the United States Supreme Court uh, on the issue of former jeopardy, whether or not Trying them in Alabama constituted jeopardy because they'd been convicted in Georgia, and the United States Supreme Court ruled five to four that it was not because Alabama and Georgia are separate sovereigns. The other one, the other one uh, was a murder case, a robbery murder case from down in. Uh, I'm trying to remember that was a kite store, which it was, was Cottonton, right? In Cottonton, Alabama, right, uh, and. Uh, Mr. Kite was murdered by a guy who had a significant criminal history, murdered and robbed, and his name was uh, Warren, I believe is his name, and he he was convicted and he was executed. Both of those individuals were executed uh, in the electric chair. In Atmore, I think, right? In Atmore. Did at, you go to those executions? At Holman Station. I did not, I did not go to them. Uh, it, there is really no provision that allows the prosecutor to go uh, unless in Alabama. The, uh, it's different in Georgia. It, I don't know what the law is in Georgia, but there is no provision that allows the prosecutor to go in, Al- in Alabama. I want to talk now. You you ran for re-election your sixth one, what, two, three years ago, two years ago? Uh, actually, five years ago. Oh wow! So it was that long. God, yeah, this is this is the fifth year in my term, and next year would be the last year of my term. Uh, are you going to finish that term? Uh, it, it, you know, it's difficult to answer that question. It's not my intention to finish that term. I, I did intend to finish that term when I ran. Uh, I've had some health issues uh, that manifested themselves uh, about two years ago. I have some, uh, I have some, uh, what's known as uh, macular degeneration in both eyes, and it's a progressive type. It's what's known as the wet type, and uh, my vision is compromised, and and that's a progressive kind of illness. Uh, I will be 75 years old in October, and I've had a job since I was 12 years old. Uh, and, you know, I, I just think it's time. 
uh, it's time for me to, to step aside. So you need to inform the governor of that. What do you, your I, have to, I have to go to the governor, and we are, we are in the process of arranging that. Getting, we've, we've, we have, we're contacting the governor to arrange that. It had to been a, that has to be an incredibly difficult decision. Uh, you know, it, it is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's almost, uh, it's really difficult for me to think about not coming through that same door. I've been coming through 44 years and walking in essentially the same office, although the courthouse has been renovated twice since I've been there. We actually moved out of the courthouse for two years twice. Uh, so not coming back in there again is... Uh, yeah, that, that's going to be uh, that's going to be difficult. When do you plan to submit your resignation effective? Before when? before October, before October. So the the eye issues is that what the the macular degeneration is that is that what's driving this in in large part, or are there other issues as well? Well, I mean that that's. Yeah, uh, there's some other things. I mean, I, I uh, aside from that, I have some other health issues. But I think that you come to a point in your life, I think everybody does, who where you say, well, is is it time? You know, and and uh, I, I think it's time. I, I think I think we need a younger individual, maybe somebody with a little more energy. I don't have the energy that I had uh, three or four years ago, uh, and I think it's I think it's uh, unfair uh, to the people of our community that they don't have somebody who's at his physical and mental best uh, to be DA. It's a it's a it's a terribly important position. And without without trying to aggrandize. The position is just really important, and it's important to me, after 44 years, that uh, someone uh, who I believe, uh, who I believe will will be really good at that position, that that they are in that position. It's Governor. It's Governor Ivy's call, though, right? That's right. Absolutely. So Once absolutely, you submit your resignation, it's out of your hands. It's entirely you, up to the governor. She has an appointment secretary, and I suppose they make recommendations, but it's entirely up to Governor Ivey. Will you give the governor a recommendation? I will. I, I do intend to give her a recommendation. You're not but, ready to but talk it's, about it. But it's up to her. I, I, okay. I'd rather not do that at this time. But okay. That's fair. I am going to give a recommendation. The decision will be made by the governor. You talked a minute ago about Emily and how she worked two jobs to put you to law school. And Emily passed away how long ago? Uh, December the 11th, 2015, which actually was my son's birthday. Y'all have been partners through and a lot. 48 years. Uh, we were married uh, 48 years when Emily died. We, we started dating in high school as juniors in high school. Uh, and we were married in 1967. My son was born in 68. Obviously, you lost a wife. But what else did you lose? Oh, wow. Uh, 
Emily, Emily and I were very different different people. She, Emily was a, a supremely confident, uh, outgoing, extrovert kind of person, and I'm almost exactly the opposite of all those things. And I depended on her uh, in more ways than I could possibly tell you uh, to help me and direct me. I, I don't think I ever would have gone back to Auburn, much less law school, had it not been for Emily. I think she saw things in me that, that, that I hoped I had, but I didn't know that I had. And, and, and she, I won't say pushed me, but she gave me confidence. Uh, and I, I'm eternally grateful for that. A partner. She was a partner. Yeah, and a great person. Great, just a really good person. As you kind of look now, you're... No, you're near the. I mean, you're near the end of end of it as far as your as your working yeah. career goes. That's what I, when I, I when I sit at my desk and uh, you know, or I'm going to a hearing. Or, or I had some extraordinary hearings today. I'm thinking, well, this will be the last time I ever do this. I have a grand jury uh, next week, and that'll, that'll be the last grand jury I ever address. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you think about all those things. You think about your mortality when you get to this point. Sure, sure, of course, absolutely. In what ways? Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I think we all say, "What was I a good person? Did I do good things? What What did I accomplish in my life?" I think we all ask ourselves those questions, don't we? I mean, don't we do that? Yeah, I uh, do. And and you know, I I I succeeded and I failed. You know, so. Uh, the strange thing I, I, to me, the, the thing that's, that's been puzzling to me a little bit about being a trial lawyer and trying the cases that I tried is that people ask me about, well, how many did you win? How many did you lose? Well, you know, I don't know. I won something over 92 or 3%. But I remember the ones that I lost uh, with much greater clarity than I remember the ones that I won. Ones that you win sort of run together, and the ones that you lose, then you question yourself about why did I lose that? Did it? What? What didn't I do? And and you can never blame juries. I mean, you, you, why? Blame, I mean, blaming I, juries is just because if the evidence is there, and the evidence is supposed to be there, if you indict somebody, if the evidence is there, it wasn't a jury's failure. It was your failure as a prosecutor. You failed somewhere. Uh, you didn't explain something to them. Sometimes we are guilty of overestimating what jurors know about the law and about life. You know, you know, I'm. You, you said I saw a Russell County jury yeah, that thought yeah. a Ponzi scheme was a legitimate business. Yeah. Well, that happened too. <laughs> I, I, I admit that. Uh, but you, you. Juries, juries are, are, I mean, jury, juries want to do the right thing. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a jury that I didn't think they wanted to do the right thing. Uh, maybe, maybe they were. I, that's impossible to know, I suppose. But uh, almost all of the cases that I lost 
I could, I, can, I could give you a concrete reason for why I thought I lost that case. And it was because of something I overlooked. I gave the jury maybe too much credit for, for understanding what this was really about. So there Underst- was one point something you did or didn't do. Yeah, I did or didn't do, absolutely. Uh, in almost every case. Now, that, now, there are a couple that I'll just tell you that I'm mystified about, but uh, those things happen. If you went into a law school, Cumberland University of Alabama, even Jones Law School, uh, you went into a law school back when you were graduating, almost everybody in that law school would have told you, I want to get in front of a jury. I'm ready for my first jury trial. You go to a law school today, you're not going to hear that as much. I mean, they're not – I don't think lawyers are chomping the bit to get in front of the jury the way your generation was. Am I? Is that right or wrong? I I think there's a lot of truth in that. I I think that there's so many other areas of the law now, from environmental law to everything you can imagine. Uh, Entertainment law. Let me tell you something, Chuck, that's that's, when I became a lawyer – Lots of people wanted to be assistant district attorneys. I mean, it, it was that was a way to get in front of a jury, to actually get in the courtroom, not go in some big firm and sit behind a desk and shuffle papers for five years. But you could go try a case. You could be in front of a jury. You could handle the case, handle the evidence. That's not true anymore. It's very difficult to find uh young people today who want to be an ADA. We don't pay very much. Uh, and the work is, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, and it's constantly, uh, it's always on edge because I have, I have five assistants in my office, you know, and they're, 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 each one of them has hundreds of cases that they have to deal with. In addition to dealing with those felony cases, they have to go to the innumerable other courts that we have every day, district, juvenile court, misdemeanor court, child support court, uh, drug court, domestic violence court, the list goes on. it's, it's a tough job. I, I mean, I, I don't think, if you hire somebody today as an ADA, as somebody who really wants to be a prosecutor, uh, because it, you don't see the people now who just want to come in for a little while and get a little experience and move on. The people that we see now are the people who want to be prosecutors the rest, you know, forever. Uh, and it, it's, it's much different. The law has, I mean, the... Uh, when I came, when I became a lawyer, the average lawyer went to law school, got out of law school. He either went to work for a big firm or he came home and went to work for a two or three-man firm. And he learned how to be a lawyer in that two or three-man firm. Those firms don't exist very much anymore. You know, they don't, the billboard lawyers, do, they've taken so much of the cream cases, the cases that make a lot of money, away from the small firms that the small firms aren't what they used to be anymore. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's an astonishing change from forty five years ago to me. Any regrets? 
That's not a fair question. <laughs> but any Go regrets? Ahead. I mean, I mean, you know, somebody who's been successful like you have uh, has had a tough well, has had a tough job, long. Job. I mean, every time you got reelected, you were successful. Well, again, when you say reelected, I didn't have opposition except for one time. Your name was on the ballot, wasn't well, it? Yeah, and nobody every, ran against you, right? Every time you got that's, reelected, that's true. Uh, I, the United States senator who who I knew and who uh, I, I won't say his name, but he was a United States senator. Well, I will say his name. His name was Heflin. Howell uh, Heflin. And, uh, Prominent he, in the Watergate hearings. And, and a brilliant man. Uh, he he uh, engineered the rebuilding, if you will, the restructuring of the of the, the courts in Alabama. Uh, he came here. We, we had him down here for law day one time. Our, our bar did. And I picked him up at the airport along with some other people. And Hal Heflin had been a prosecutor at one time. And, and he said to me, you know, it's the best job I ever had, but don't stay too long. And, you know, maybe I stayed too long. I don't know. Maybe I, You think about that. You think about, well, should I have moved on, done something else? I liked it a lot. I enjoyed it. Uh, I, and I guess you get a little used to it. You know, you, it's something you become accustomed to. Uh, but, you know... Was that right or wrong? I, I, I don't regret it. It doesn't sound like a regret. I, I, don't, I don't regret it. I don't regret my career. I don't regret being DA 38 years. I, 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 had, uh, I had great, uh, there were moments that just you can't buy. When, when you see justice done for somebody who has suffered, suffered injustice, and normally we're talking about you know, you know, we're not talking about the the economic top. Most of the victims of crime that we see are middle class, lower middle class, and disadvantaged people. Those are the people who are preyed on for the most part. And so often, when you're the prosecutor, you're the only guy in the room uh, that's for them. And the, the you know the defendant may have a half the courtroom maybe his friends relatives or whatever and his pastor gets up and talks about what a great citizen he is and how great his character is and do you ever cross examine one of those pastors all the time <laughs> all the time uh, I I'll tell you uh, if I don't know if we have time yeah we'll, I, we'll, we'll I, go I, a minute or two over um. Many years ago, I tried a case in which there was a young girl. She was 13 years old, and she was, in fact, a prostitute. And she, had, she was being prostituted by her, by her mother, actually. And some men, a number of men, were charged with uh, prostituting her and taking her to a local hotel in Phoenix City, and they videotaped uh, some terrible things that they did to this young girl. And we, they were indicted, and we went to trial. I tried four men at one time. I was sitting at the, the uh, prosecutor's table. Each one of them had a lawyer. Every time I asked a question, I got four different objections that the judge had to deal with. There was nobody on my side of the courtroom. Those people all had a lot of people on their side of the courtroom. 
But there was one lady, one little gray-haired woman. You know, she had one of those buns at the back of her head like my grandmother had. She stayed there the whole time. I didn't actually know who she was. We got a conviction, and at the end of it, this woman comes up, and she sort of takes my hands in her hands. And she said, you're a great man. Now, I knew that I wasn't a great man. I knew what all my failings were. But you cannot replace that feeling with any amount of money. Yours is an emotional job, too. I should have said that right. It can be. It's an emotional job. Well, we're near the end of this, and I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to do it because I've done it with every guest now, and this is the 21st episode, I think. I call it Turn the Tables. I've been asking you questions for an hour. <laughs> you get to ask me one. That, uh, and you're a professional question asker. Well, I, well, yeah, I, the question I would ask you is, how do you feel about journalism in America? Because I'm very concerned about journalism in America. And, and I, when I went to school, I started in journalism school. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be a broadcaster. That's really what I wanted to be. How do you feel about uh, journalism as a, as, a, as a profession, as an industry in America? I share your concerns. Um, I'm probably, you're 40, 50 days from retirement. I'm still four years away, probably. Um, I'm concerned that we have lost the definition of journalism. I think people consider something they read on Facebook, journalism, or they consider, you know, whether it be Don Lemon or Tucker Carlson talking on CNN or Fox to be journalism. To, to me, a lot of that is entertainment. And um, the real journalists, the real journalists that are working, the people that are working, you know, in broadcast as well as print, um, you know, we've got a heavy burden. And it's, you know, getting both sides of the story is hard. Getting the story right has become harder. You know, you've always had people... Prosecutors have always had people that shot at them, figuratively. Sure. And you that, know that's part of the yeah. That's, that's part of the gig. It's part of the job. You know, when I became a journalist, I didn't consider the fact that at the end of my career, I would be called the enemy of the people, and that you know, to me, you know, that's disheartening. But you know, there's hope. I mean, you know, I think. I've seen a lot of good young journalists coming into this station. See a couple over at the newspaper right now, um, you know, and we're running them out quick. Some of them are lasting because it's hard. I mean, I mean, being a journalist is a hard, hard job. It's long hours. It, you know, it doesn't pay very well. But it's it's a hard job, but we need more people with conviction and character to do it, or we're you know, or we're in a we're in a we're in a heck of a fix. 
I think that's very honest, and uh, and uh, I appreciate that. And and I think much of what you say is absolutely the way I feel about it. Uh, and I think a lot of a lot of people in this country feel that way about it. I don't think either one of us, and we've known each other for some time, would be s- surprised to know we share some similar worldviews. I mean, no, I've seen prob- enough. Probably not. I mean, I've seen enough of you. I mean, journalists and prosecutors are very similar genetic makeups. We're we're DNA cousins yeah. in many many ways. I mean, we're we're both going after the truth. If we if we're if we're honest with ourselves and honest by our jobs, we're both going after the truth. That's what you. That's certainly what you hope for. That's what you're trying for. I mean, if if a person's not going after the truth in your job, they're not going to last very long because they'll be exposed. Same thing on this side, in my opinion. Absolutely. Whew, heavy hour there, man. Uh, Well, let let me say that uh, how much I appreciate the opportunity. You know, this is, as as we've talked about, this is um, maybe the last interview I'll ever do, but it's... uh, I have a lot of admiration for you, and I've known you a long time, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Hey, admiration runs both ways, and I, you know it's kind of like that bridge between Columbus and Phoenix City, man. <laughs> it goes goes both ways. Well, we have hit the end of the Chuck Williams show. When now's the point where I tell you that you can watch the Chuck Williams show on um, on uh, wrbl.com. It's Tuesdays from seven to eight. And we also are getting really close to a major announcement, right? Dylan Hanson, our director. Dylan is uh, Dylan has been the guy who's been here in the seat every time for me. And Dylan, we're we're getting really close to the Spotify and um, Apple announcements, and we're looking forward to that. Um, I think by next week we'll probably be talking about that. Would that be a safe guess? Oh uh, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty safe guess, yeah. Perfect. Um, also, also, then we'll go to social media. Obviously, I'm on Twitter at Chuck Williams. I've been there a long, long time. And uh, on Facebook, I'm Chuck Williams WRBL. And on Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. Well, you know, this one's a little different from the other 19 podcasts we've done. We've been with Kenny Davis, the district attorney over in Russell County. And uh, Kenny made some news. Uh, he has told us that he plans to retire and before the end of October. He won't fill, finish out his six-year term, and Governor Kay Ivey over in Alabama will be making an appointment. So I think this will be a news story tomorrow. Um, and thank you for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. I mean, you know, all we want to do here is talk to people and have conversations. I don't want to drill them. I want to talk to him, and tonight was a prime example of what this show's about. Thanks for listening to The Chuck Williams Show.